Treatise on the Love of God, Chapter 6, Contemplation and Meditation, Love and Prayer. Our love of God is experienced in two ways, emotional and active, affective and effective. By the first we conceive, with the second we give birth. One places God in our heart, working in us, the other lets God use our arms, working through us. The first exercise is essentially prayer. Prayer is such a varied experience, it is impossible to describe every aspect of it. This is partly because of the many different nuances of prayer. The largest obstacle is attempting to describe something spiritual in nature. Spiritual matters are extremely obscure and almost indiscernible. The best trained hounds often lose the track of the stag. The deer doubles back, putting them on the wrong scent. It has many tricks and help it escape the baying dogs. We usually lose the scent and understanding of our own heart because of its multiplicity of emotions. We are not able to follow the track. Only God perceives and understands the turns and twists of our hearts. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Psalm 139, 1 and 2. God does not miss any detail. Certainly, if our spirits could reconsider our actions and turn back the way we came, we would end up in a maze from which it is impossible to escape. We are not able to think what our thoughts are. It is beyond us to observe our spiritual observations. This treatise is not an easy assignment, particularly for one who is not an expert at prayer. Prayer is more than asking God for something good. St. Bonaventure says that prayer includes every act of contemplation. St. Gregory Nazarenzen and St. Chrysostom teaches that prayer is conversation with God. St. Augustine and St. Damascene describe prayer as the soul ascending to God. Prayer is a disclosure of the soul with God. Through prayer we speak to God and God speaks to us. What topics do we discuss with God? What is the subject of our conversation? Theodemus, the only thing we speak of in prayer is God. What else can love mention but the Beloved? Because of this, prayer and mystical theology are identical. We can label it theology because God is the object. Systematic theology, however, examines God as God. Mystical theology deals with God as supremely friendly. The former regards the divinity of the supreme goodness and the latter the supreme goodness of the divinity. Instead of the knowledge of God, mystical theology considers the love of God. Systematic theology produces wise scholars and learned theologians. Mystical theology leads to fervent scholars who love God. Philotheus or a Theophilus. It is called mystical because of the conversation of prayer is secret. No words are spoken aloud. It is not overheard by anyone else. Lovers have their own language. They do not require spoken language. Prayer mystical theology is a conversation between an amorous soul and God. Prayer is hidden manna. Revelations 2.17 It is manna because it is delicious. It is hidden because it arrives in advance of the insight of knowledge. The soul has been compared with a dove. 
This bird is known to seek out shady places apart from other birds, where the only use she makes of her song is for her mate. She courts him with it in life and mourns him with it in death. In the Song of Songs, the divine lover and the heavenly spouse characterize their love as an uninterrupted conversation. Others may exchange thoughts with them, but this does not disturb their discussion. At the beginning of her spiritual development, St. Teresa of Avila benefits by meditating upon those moments in the gospel where our Savior was nearly alone, in the Garden of Gethsemane, or by the well in Samaria. She felt that he accepted her into his company more readily under such circumstances. Love wants privacy. Even though lovers may have nothing secret to say, they would rather speak it in seclusion. It is quite intimate conversation. A name spoken in public does not have the same impact as a name whispered secretly in the ear. O oh God, what contrast there is between the language of the ancient lovers of God, Ignatius, Cyprian, Chrysostom, Augustine, Hilary, Ephraim, Gregory, Bernard, and the language of Lefts, affectionate modern theologians. We use some of the same words, but when they spoke them, the words were fiery and sweetly perfumed. With us, the words are cold and have no scent at all. Beyond words, love has little need for language. It uses the eyes, facial expressions, and sighs. Silence has a vast vocabulary. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Psalm 27, 8. Hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. Psalm thirty-nine, twelve. The principal exercise in mystical theology is to speak to God and to perceive God speaking inside us. In utter silence, eyes speak to eyes and heart speaks to heart. Only the lovers themselves know what is being shared. The word meditation is often used in the Holy Scripture. It refers to dwelling on a single thought with great attention. In the first psalm, the man is blessed whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 and 2. On the other hand, in the second psalm we discover the meditation can focus on evil as well as on good. Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on vain things? Psalm 2, 1. Paraphrased. Today we commonly understand meditation to me, concentrated attention on the holy. This is the first degree of prayer in mystical theology. Meditation involves thinking, but all thinking is not meditation. Our random thoughts are like flies in a flower garden. They gather no honey. If we focus our attention on such passing notions, we may call it thinking, but this is quite different from meditation. Our best study of a subject is like a locust that feeds itself by chewing on plants. The purpose of the meditation is not education, but appreciation and love. Rather than satisfying an intellectual hunger, meditation visits flowers of holy mysteries to gather divine love's honey. It is common to daydream, 
thoughts drift through our minds without any particular pattern. Intellectual curiosity leads us to dig deeply into subjects. Only a few of us meditate in order to open ourselves to God's love. Casual thinking and disciplined scholarship may get into almost any imaginable subject. Meditation centers only upon that which will help us to be devout. Hezekiah, king of Judea, said, I cried like a shift or a thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. Isaiah thirty-eight fourteen. Have you ever noticed, dear Theotimus, that most birds sing with their beaks wide open while the dove makes its call with its beak closed? The sound seems to come from its throat, breasts, and emerges with a peculiar resonance and reverberation. This closed mouth murmuring is all they need to communicate both grief and joy. Hezekiah cried out like a swift or a thrush during his illness. His prayer was uttered loud. He openly expressed his discomfort and fear. Then he turned to silent prayer, quietly and privately. In his own mind, he meditated in the manner of a dove. He thought continuously about the way God mercifully restored his health. This led him to bless and praise God. As Isaiah expressed it, we all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. Isaiah fifty nine eleven. The growling of the bear is the noise we make with vocal prayer. The mourning of the dove is holy meditation. The Lord commanded Joshua, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Joshua 1, eight. Prolonged meditation results in respect, determination, and activity. The best way to accomplish and fulfill the law is to keep your mind on it. The Apostle gives the same guidance. Consider him who endures such opposition from the sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews 12.3 Such consideration is meditation. Why does he want us to meditate upon the passion of Christ? It is not a matter of education. Instead of the learning of facts, the intended result is the gaining of patience and endurance. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all the day long. Psalm 119 and 97. David meditates on God's law because he loves it. He loves it because he meditates on it. Focused Meditation when a bee flies from one spring flower to another, there is nothing random about it. The bee is not there to, re to revel in the beauty of springtime. Its purpose is to gather honey. It loads itself with pollen, returning to the hive. It is able to fill a wax comb with self-sustaining nourishment. This is the way it is with a devout person who meditates. Meditation is not a... Haphazard filtering from a mystery to mystery. The point is not personal pleasure in enjoying the things of God. There is an initial purpose to discover motivating love. She gathers what she can and stores it in her heart for us in difficult times. In the Song of Songs, the soul spouse 
flits about like a mystical bee. It lands on its beloved's lips, cheek, and hair. It is attracted by the sweetness of a thousand impulses of love, observing what is most appealing. On fire with holy love, it talks with him and asks him questions. He delights it, inspires it. He pours brightness into its open heart. This is all done secretly. It might be said of the sacred conversation between the soul and God, as it was said of Moses when he was alone with God on Mount Sinai. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Exodus 19.19 The Otimus contemplation is an adoring, uncomplicated, and enduring attention of the soul to divine things. Little bees are called larvae. We really can't call them bees until they make honey. Prayer may be labeled meditation until it results in devotional honey. Then it may properly be called contemplation. In the same way these bees fly across meadows collecting pollen, we meditate to stockpile the love of God. Once we have it, we begin to contemplate God. Our desire for God leads us to meditation. An awareness of the loving presence of God results in contemplation. Our appetite is quickened rather than satisfied. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Shema saw all the wisdom of Solomon and placed it in the place he had built, the food on his table and seating of his officials and attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, How happy your officials who continually stand before you and your wisdom. First Kings 10, 1 and 8 her meditation had changed to contemplation. She was spellbound. Sometimes we nibble a little food in order to gain an appetite. Once our appetite is excited, we dine with enthusiasm. Meditating upon God's goodness excites our desire to love God. With love in our hearts, we consider God's goodness in order to satisfy our need. Meditation is love's mother. Contemplation is love's daughter. There is a continuing cycle. Because we find the object of our love beautiful, we love. Because we love, we enjoy the sight of our beloved. Love wants to dwell upon the beauty of the beloved, and the sight deepens devotion love, which is the most powerful love that makes us look or the sight that makes us love. We will never love what is unknown to us. Once knowledge results in love, love expands beyond the limitation of our knowledge. We can have more love for God than understanding of God. St. Thomas assures us it is possible for a simple person to be extraordinarily devout, while cleverest of the educated are denied this gift. Love goes deeper than knowledge. Brother Giles, a friend of St. Francis, once said to St. Bonaventure, you educated people must be very happy. You understand so much about God. What can an idiot like me achieve? Bonaventure answered him, It is enough to love God. 
There is no way an ignorant person can love God as well as one who is educated. That is not true. A poor, simple person may love God as much as a doctor of divinity. This thought enraptured St. Bonaventure. Understanding assists the will in determining what is good. After the good is observed, understanding is not required for the practice of love. Knowledge of good generates love, but does not proportion it. We become angry when we learn of some injustice or injury. Unless our anger is controlled, it may well grow to greater intensity that the matter deserves. Emotions are not rational. This effect is intensified in holy love. The intellect is not a participant. Faith is the guiding light. It assures us of God's infinite goodness. We find gold and silver by digging in the earth, hoping to discover some. We work hard without any positive knowledge that there is any precious metal where we are digging. If we find a little vein of the mineral, we begin to dig more feverishly. Even a cold scent will excite a hound to the hunt. This is the way it is, Theotimus, with faith. Who would love light the most? Would it be the one born blind who has heard others philosophize about its beauty and value? The blind person may have more actual knowledge of it, but the farmer harvests by it. This experience of fruition results in lively and affectionate love. Intellectual knowledge can't do this. Actual experience of good is far more stimulating than a scientific analysis of it. Before children can have tasted honey and sugar, it is difficult to get them to eat it. Once they have tasted the sweetness, they enjoy them more than we wish they would, always eager to have some more. Knowledge can be useful for the spiritual life. We are faithfully attracted by objects of our devotion. But understanding gives us a push. Pleasure draws us. Knowledge pushes us. Knowledge is not a bad thing. It can greatly assist devotion. It is a pity that it can also be such a hindrance. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 There can be no doubt that the careful, systematized knowledge of such people as Cyprian, Augustine, Hilary, Chrysostom, Basil, and Gregory, Bonaventure, and Thomas has improved their devotion even as their devotion has elevated their systemized knowledge. Meditation and Contemplation Meditation examines the details. Contemplation considers the larger picture. Consider an ornate crown. You can study its precious jewels one by one, or you can see the harmony and the rhythm of its overall design. Meditation sees the, the trees while the contemplation sees the woods. While meditating, we may think of God's mercy towards us and be led to love. In contemplation, all the various elements and details come together in a unified and beautiful wholeness. The Song of Songs, the bride gives a detailed description of her sacred spouse. His head is pure as gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels, 
His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His hips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with chrysolite. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. Song 5, 11, and 15 she extends this meditation on all the details until she finally gathers them in a simple contemplation. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend. Song 516 Meditation is like smelling a dunthus, a rose, a rosemary, a thyme, and other things in the garden one at a time. Contemplation is comparable to smelling all of these things together in a potpourri. This mingled scent is deeper and far more complex than individual fragrances. Happy are the ones who have progressed beyond meditating upon the separate motives they have for loving God to a contemplation that unifies them all. This happened to St. Bernard after the meditated Upon every detail of the Passion of Christ, he put it all together in a nosegay of adoring sorrow. With this, he changed his meditation to contemplation, saying, My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh. Song 113. This collective affection is far more powerful than all the individual affections that came together. It is only one but it contains the essence of all the others. It is contemplative affection. St. Augustine and St. Thomas tell us that in heaven our thoughts will not be scattered. One day will contain them all. Water running near its source is in one stream. The closer we are to God, the more we contemplate in unity. This is what Jesus said of Mary. She has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Luke 10.42 Contemplation at its simplest has three approaches. We may focus on a single perfection of God, such as infinite goodness. We ignite other attributes during this time of contemplation. A bridegroom may be utterly distracted by nothing more than his bride's complexion. She may be beautiful in many other ways, but he is preoccupied with only one aspect. A second possibility of contemplation is to give attention to several of God's attributes, but blending them together. We may not be able to describe anything in particular, but knowing that God is perfectly lovely. In this way, the bridegroom may use a sweeping glance, head to toe, of his gorgeously attired bride. He perceives it all together, noticing few specific details. Her necklace, gown, and facial expressions are lost on him. All he can think of is that she is extremely attractive. The third approach is to disregard divine perfections and give full attention to divine activity. We may contemplate the act of mercy in which our sins are forgiven, or the act of creation, or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, or the conversion of St. Paul. In the same way, the bridegroom may not single out the eye, but only the sweet expression on his bride's face. He may not notice her lips, but might be touched by the words she speaks through them. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 119 and 68. 
His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. Song 5 and 16. All three ways are valid. In each contemplation, it understandingly delightful. We have approached the holy love of God and enjoyed it. I found the one whom my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go. Song 3, 4. This makes contemplation quite different from meditation, which nearly always takes a lot of effort on our part. Meditation is like eating. It is necessary to chew, turning spiritual meat this way and that between the teeth of consideration. Working on it, we grind it up to make it digestible. Contemplation is like drinking. There is no protracted labor by our teeth. We calmly swallow our drink with pleasure. There is even the possibility of sacred drunkenness. We can contemplate frequently and ardently enough to be completely out of ourselves and totally in God. This is quite different from inebriation of the flesh. It does not make us dull and stupid. Instead of lowering us to the level of animals, it lifts us to the level of angels. It follows us to live more in God than in ourselves. To arrive at contemplation, we must hear the word of God, confer with others on spiritual matters, read, pray, sing, and conceive worthy thoughts. Since contemplation is the goal of those practices, we may call the ones who take this route contemplatives. Their occupation we may term a contemplative life. Deeper prayer. There are two levels of prayer. In that state, we call recollection. In one, those who are ready to pray concisely place themselves in God's presence. During the time of prayer, there is little concern with the external world or the business of life. Love inspires the prayer. In the other, love does not inspire the prayer as much as it controls the prayer. It, it impels us, whether we wish it or not, to withdraw from the world and be as fully in God's presence as possible. It is not a matter of free choice on our part. It is not something we can seek whenever we please. It does not depend upon our participation. God makes it happen. St. Teresa of Avila says that the one who has described the prayer of reco recollection as a turtle drawing into its shell is correct with one exception. The turtle does this whenever it pleases, while a prayer of recollection is not our choice. It comes only when God is ready to do this for us. Here is how it happens. It is completely natural for the soul to be drawn to unite itself with what it loves. Sometimes our Lord unnoticeably infuses into the deep places of our being a particularly delightful pleasantness that assures us He is present. This increases the ability of the soul to turn in towards its most interior part and be there with the friendliest and dearest of spouses. When bees are swarming, they are ready to relocate far away, but they can be called to a hive prepared for them by gently tapping on a metal pan, or by the scent of honeyed wine or a mixture of herbs. This is the same when our Savior utters a word of love in secret or lets us feel His presence. He becomes the most desirable object of all, 
and our souls are attracted to him. O God, the soul cries out in the manner of St. Augustine. I was looking for you everywhere, and you are within me. Mary Magdalene is looking frantically for Jesus all around the vicinity of the empty tomb. Her spirit is scattered until he speaks her name. At that moment, she collects her wits and throws herself at his feet. One word places her into recollection. As soon as we recognize God is present, or that he is observing us from outside ourselves, even if we disregard his presence within us, our capacities come together out of respect for him. I know a woman who became even more conscious of the nearness of God when she heard a particular phrase. She would enter so deeply into herself that she seemed to be in a trance. Sometimes it would only last a moment, or other times it was more protracted. The soul that is inwardly recollected in God's presence becomes so utterly distracted that its attention takes on a special quality. It is like being in a boat on a smoothly flowing river and not noticing any motion. This is what St. Teresa of Avila calls a quiet prayer. I understand her correctly. This is only a step away from what she calls sleeping powers. This spiritual tranquility is strong enough to shut down all awareness except the pleasure of enjoying the nearness of the one we love. It is forgetting of self. It is like dozing in a light nap and barely hearing what our friends around us are saying. During this time, the soul is enjoying a delicate awareness of the divine presence. It has no conscious enjoyment of it, but if one attempts to take it away or divert it, it will protect, it will protest loudly. The soul will respond like a child that is waked up too soon from a nap. For this reason, the heavenly shepherd begs the daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you to, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Song 2, 7. Let us wake naturally, Theotimus, a soul that is recollected in God, would not exchange that moment for the best this world has to offer. Mary sits quietly at Jesus' feet, listening to him speak. She is in profound tranquility. She neither weeps nor prays. Martha is busy rushing back and forth. Mary does not notice her. What is Mary doing? Nothing except listening. She is containing that is receiving every drop that comes to her. Martha attempts, as it were, to waken her. Lord, don't you care what my sister has left me to do, the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Luke 10, 40 and 42. Mary's superior choice was to be peacefully quiet near Jesus. The beloved St. John is usually painted in the Eastern manner at the Last Supper with his head on his master's chest. He seems to be 
in deep repose, almost asleep. There is no chance that he could be dozing under those circumstances. It is a profound mystical sleep. It is the same way that the soul that is at rest and quiet in God's presence. There are no perceptible physical sensations, no comments, and no visible activity. Only the highest part of the will is in motion. The divine presence is the ultimate satisfaction. Disturbing someone in this spiritual state is like taking a baby too soon from the breast of its mother. Since the Blessed Mother St. Teresa wrote that this was an excellent parallel, I do not hesitate to make good use of it. If it should ever be that you find yourself in this simple, pure closeness with our Lord, stay there. Don't even attempt to think rational thoughts. This confident love, this devout sleep in the arms of the Savior, provides everything you need. It is better to be asleep on the sacred breast than to be wide awake anywhere else. And why, Theotimus, should a soul recollecting God ever be disturbed? There is every good reason to continue in peace and repose. What else is there to find? I found the one my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. Song 3 and 4 There is no need to be bothered with understanding. He is there with me. Reasoning is worthless. It is enough to feel his presence. Some people are naturally active spiritually. They enjoy the experience and give a lot of attention to the progress they are making. Others need to examine and analyze their religious experience. They are like those who will not acknowledge they are rich unless they have exact accounts of their money. These approaches to prayer are actually hindrances. If God decides to grant them the sacred calm of his presence, they turn away from it in an effort to tabulate their personal response. Am I really content? Is there tranquility, genuine tranquility? What is the degree of my quietness? Instead of being absorbed in the divine presence, they arouse their intellect to analyze their feelings. There is an enormous difference between being occupied with God, who is the source of our contentment, and being preoccupied with the contentment that God has given. Don't be distracted, Theotimus, by yourself or the experience itself. If you give too much attention, it will be all lost. Love is without loving it too restlessly. As a baby who turns its head away from the breast in order to study its feet while quickly returning to it, so we must not be disturbed or distracted for long wondering how our prayer is progressing. Quickly return God's presence. There is no need to worry about the risks of losing this sacred con by any activity of your body and mind that is neither frivolous nor indiscreet. St. Teresa assures us it is superstitious to be so careful that we fearfully refuse to cough or breathe. God does not withdraw his gift because of any involuntary actions. Holy quiet exists in various degrees. Sometimes it is all the strength of the soul working in harmony with the will. Sometimes it is only in the will, and other times the soul is more than aware that God is present. It hears God speak. This speech does not consist in words, 
but in inward enlightenment and influence. The response is usually a respectful silence. There are always times when the soul speaks with God. This it does privately, delicately. It does not interrupt the holy quiet. Sometimes the soul neither hears nor speaks to its beloved. There is not even a perception that he has come to it. It is simply a matter of knowing that God is present and is pleased that it is there also. What if St. John had actually fallen asleep on Jesus at the Last Supper? In this case, he would have been in his master's presence without being aware of it. It takes more effort to place yourself in God's presence than to remain there. It requires conscious attention. Once we are in God's presence, we remain there by strong ties of spiritual conversation and sharing. Actually, it is enough for us to simply stay where it pleases God for us to be. What a privilege. Imagine a statue that has been placed in a niche. Suppose it could talk. You ask it what it is doing in the niche. It would answer, because my master put me here. But what is the point in sitting there doing nothing? My master did not place me here to perform any task. It is enough that I am here. Poor statue, you reply, pressing the point. What difference does it make that you are there? I am not here for my own sake, it would answer. I am here because it pleases my master. That is enough for me. But you don't see your master. How can you be content with pleasing him? You are right. I can't see him. My eyes don't work any better than my feet. It satisfies me that my dear master is pleased to see me here. You continue to debate with the statue and ask it, but don't you at least have a desire to approach your master and offer him some greater service? No, I have no desire to do anything other than what my master wishes. Then you have no desire to be anything other than an immovable object in a hollow niche. The wise statue answers affirmatively, I only wish to be a statue in this niche as long as it pleases my master. I am content to be here because the one who owns me is content to have me here. Because of him, I am what I am. It is good to remain in the presence of God. It is good to desire to be in God's presence. Even in our deepest sleep, we can be profoundly in the holy presence of God. If we love God, we sleep not only in his sight, but also at his pleasure. It is our creator, our heavenly sculpturer, who tucks us in bed even as statues are placed in niches. We settle down in God's presence as birds cuddle up in the nests. When we awake, if we think about it, we discover that God was constantly with us through the night. We were not separated from Him in any way. Without observing anything at all, we can speak as Jacob did. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Genesis 28:16. This kind of quiet truly understanding because it does not have a trace of self-interest. The soul is not pondering cont contentment. The highest point of ecstatic love is not to be concerned with our own contentment, but God's. The liquefaction of our soul. 
Liquid takes on the shape of whatever it contains in. Lacking rigidity, they do not limit themselves to any particular form. Whether the container is round or square makes no difference. Liquids accept its shape and seek no other. The human soul is not naturally like a liquid. It is shaped by habit and preferences. Our personal choices impose limits when we speak of a stony or a wooden heart or a heart tough as iron, we refer to someone who does not easily receive divine influence. A gentle, palpable heart may be placed a melting or liquefied heart. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. The Holy Spouse in the song said, My heart has gone out to him, melted when he spoke. Song Five, six. It was no longer self-contained. It flowed out to its divine lover. Balm is thick and syrupy. If stored for any length of time, it becomes even thicker and more solid. It can be dissolved and returned to a liquid state by heating it. Love acts like heat on the soul. Then there is a sharing together. Spirit mingled with spirit. Your name is like perfume poured out, song one and three. As the sun melts an exposed honeycomb, allowing the honey to flow out in the direction of the heat and light, so the soul flows towards what it loved. It goes beyond its natural limits. Let us explain how this sacred overflowing of the soul occurs. An extraordinary desire to please God results in a kind of spiritual helplessness. The soul is no longer able to be self-centered. Like melted balm that has lost its firmness and solidity, the soul flows into what it loves. It is not a matter of impulsively clinging. Instead, there is a gentle fluid movement into the greatly loved divinity. It happens in a way similar to the effect of a south wind on clouds. They melt and turn to rain, um, unable to contain themselves. The rain falls on the earth and saturates it, becoming one with it. The soul then transcends its ordinary limits and flows towards God. It becomes mingled with God, absorbed and engulfed in God. After such an experience, there is little on earth that can provide contentment. St. Teresa of Avila said, What is not God is nothing to me. There is the loving passion that incites St. Paul to say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 an ordinary drop of water is thrown into an ocean of invaluable essence. If it could speak, it would joyfully shout, I continue to exist, but I do not live in myself. This great ocean lives in me. My life is hidden in this chasm. Death is not the word to use to describe what happens to the soul that flows out to God. How can anything die that is being mingled with life? What changes is this soul does not continue to live independently. Stars do not shine when the sun is in the sky, but they have not lost their light. They are simply overwhelmed by the brightness of the day. They are hidden in sunlight. The soul being swallowed up in God lives not in itself. God lives in the soul. Love Wounds 
If you barely love God, you will also hardly hate sin. Love is the primary source of all passions. It is love that arrives first. It penetrates deeply to the very foundation of the desire. Love wounds the heart. Injuries hurt. Pomegranate juice is both sweet and sour. It is difficult to say which quality gives it such a delightful taste. It possesses a sweet tartness and a tart sweetness. Love is bittersweet. As long as we reside on earth, the sweetness of love will never be perfectly sweet, and we will never be completely satisfied. But how can the love of God bring injury and pain if what one loves is absent? Then, my dear Theotimus, the desire for it can be agonizing. Love can wound the heart with desire. It would do little good to tell a child who has been stung by a bee that the source of such pain is also the source of sweet honey. He would reply, Yes, I like honey, but this stinger hurts as long as it remains in my cheek. I am in misery. My face is swollen with it. Love can produce pain. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? Psalm 42, 2 and 3 Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Proverbs thirteen twelve. There are different kinds of love pains. When love first disturbs us, there is a crumbling of the solid stone of the heart portions. It overflows out towards the beloved, and there is a tentainment to a wounding of the heart. Separating a portion of the heart from itself can be painful. As noted above, desire always stings and wounds the heart. In the case of heavenly love, there is a wound that is a gift from God, the allured soul, has turned away from itself and flowed towards God, approaching as nearly as possible something holds it back. The soul's love is not the equal of the soul's desire. This is a miserable condition. There is a longing to fly, but the chains of this earthly life hold it down. It is beyond the soul's power to do anything about it. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Psalm 55, 6. The soul is torn by the tension that pulls in two directions. It can do nothing to achieve its greatest desire. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 In love with God, desperately desiring to love God more fully, the soul is not able to realize its ultimate goal. It is a dart in the side of the noble spirit. It hurts, but the pain is welcomed. Whoever desires strongly to love also loves strongly to desire. Genuine misery would result from not desiring to love what is overwhelmingly worthy of love. Desiring to love brings pain. Loving to desire brings joy. A bee dies after its sting. The Savior of our soul was fatally wounded by love for us. Even death on a cross. Philippians 2 and 8. We then are wounded for him. It is a wound of love. We are distressed by the slightest indication that God may not fully trust our love. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. John twenty one seventeen. The poor soul who would rather die than offend God and yet lacks even a spark of fervor is badly wounded. 
Many have grown cold, became distracted, and feel the same reproach Peter felt. How can we say we love God when our soul is not enthusiastically with God? This is the dart of pain God hurls our way. It is sent with love. If we didn't love, we wouldn't worry that we might not love.